We are at 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to turn to that. We are tackling a very, very difficult passage this morning. Um, This is one that in most preaching series, people just skip over this one. Um, It's funny, obviously, I came to it and thought, ah, I wonder what there is about, you know, what can I learn? Essentially, most commentators are totally baffled by what's going on here. And... um, I think we have a commitment, don't we, as a church? Either that or we're just really stubborn. But we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And actually, everything is beneficial and useful to bring. And we believe it's living and active and has an impact on us. And so, we are looking at this passage this morning. So, we'll we'll read it and we'll, we'll go on from there. So, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God's. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it, but it, it, If it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? That if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. Who fancies coming and giving this one a go? Please, take it off me. Um, just a quick recap then on what's going on. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians. This is the church in Corinth. Paul established. Essentially, he's left this place after spending quite a bit of time. And he's received a letter, or several letters actually, explaining some of the issues going on in the church. And so he's responding back. We have to understand this is the other half of a letter that we haven't seen the original letter sent to him. So he's responding back to that. And we've seen lots of different things going on in the church, lots of corrupt practices and things like that. But the last three chapters that we've been looking at, we've been looking at the fact that actually there's freedom in Christ. And um, there's a point of the church moving in those freedoms, but also just being aware of the culture around them and being sensitive to that. And um, as I said to you, this passage is just very bizarre, isn't it? Um, It's very controversial. Um, And as I said, a lot of commentators really struggle to understand what is going on here. Um, I have to be honest, as I bring this and as I bring what I think the passage is, for some of you, you won't agree with me. And that's perfectly okay. Absolutely. But I am going to bring what I think this passage is about and I think just thinking about it, it's very difficult for, for many reasons. One is, it, you can see in it, it's very obscure. And it's very removed culturally from here 
our experience of culture in Liverpool. And it's also, um, it's just a very emotive passage. It's got inflammatory language where we're talking about things like submission and authority and men and women and headship. And when it comes to our culture, those are words and, and language that actually we don't like, okay? It has controversial um, connotations to it. And I think the other thing about this passage is it's been used in a wrong way to manipulate, to oppress women in the past. It's been used as a way of um, exerting authority. And um, really what we need to do is make sure that as we look at this, we really want to try and understand the passage of what it's actually saying not what we want it to say sometimes. And uh, as I first sat down to look at this scripture, there are so many questions that run through my head. Um, Just thinking about the main point of the passage, though, it's very helpful just to understand. Obviously, we've got this verses 4 to 6. We've got this very practical problem going on in the church. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. The the very practical problem that we can understand in this passage, there was something going on in the church about head coverings. Okay, there's a very practical problem there uh, that both men and women were addressing. And for some of you, this may be the first time that you've come across this idea of head coverings in the Bible. Um, And for others of you, you might have even been in churches where head coverings were mandatory. Um, I remember growing up in New Frontiers, I remember um, Terry Virgo set this up. Wendy Virgo got up and um, at a conference and basically taught a little bit on this, and they stopped wearing head coverings in New Frontiers. So even, how long ago was that, Rachel? 30 years ago, probably? So there's all sorts of questions that I started asking as I looked at this passage. You know, why is it that up until maybe about 60, 70 years ago, most of the church continued to see this passage as a very literal passage where they used head coverings. You know, why have we suddenly changed footing? And why do so many people see this now, this passage now, as a cultural passage, okay, uh, that was a stance for that specific day? And, you know, if it is a cultural passage, then what meaning and instruction does it leave for us now? What does it, does it actually mean it's null and void and we can just skip this passage and say, okay, it was about head coverings, that's not relevant for our culture, so it's got no relevance to us at all. What does it mean for women who do use head coverings today? You know, are they right? Are they wrong? Actually, there's something of them wanting to honor Scripture and obey God in what they're doing. And how do we go about discerning all of this? In Scripture, surely we know that Scripture is all God-breathed, don't we? And how do we decide whether something is actually to be followed literally, or whether it's a cultural symbol of that day? And so that's what I'm going to try and help us to look at a little bit about what this passage is about. Um, and it does take us down some different lines. Um, so I want to start by thinking about culture and language, and we have to acknowledge that words have different meanings in different cultures, and so do physical symbols. And if the meaning of those physical symbols, well, that's small writing, isn't it? If the meaning of those physical symbols um, has lost its translation, um, it changes from one culture to another, then the question has to be asked, what was the symbol trying to replicate? And do we, keep, do we just keep doing the thing that is being asked about, or do we try and make 
the actual point of the, of the symbol, the definition. So, for example, swapping sandals has nothing to do with contract keeping here in the UK, and yet in the Bible it did. Um, just a few things here on hand gestures I was looking at. Neil, if you want to show the first one. So, thumbs up. The thumbs up hand gesture in our country and most countries that we know is good to go, everything's okay, everything's good. But actually in some countries like in Sardinia, it's, a, it's supposed to be a swear word. It's a swear uh, definition. Also, you've got this next one here. This is called the horns. You obviously see American rock stars doing it. Yeah, rock on. And actually, in a lot of the South American countries, you do this. And it means your spouse is cheating on you. That's what it means. And then, next one. It's A-OK. It's A-OK. And actually, um, in Brazil, I'm, I'm told, uh, President Nixon actually went there, and he was famous for doing this in the 50s. He went and he did this to a crowd in Brazil, not realizing that it was highly offensive and so we started getting these boos from the crowds because you're like, hey, everything's okay. And just hadn't an understanding of that culture and what that sign signified in its culture. And um, as we look at the Bible, this is the same, isn't it? There are some things that happen that we're told to do, we're exhorted to do in the Bible that we don't actually do. So, for example, we're told to... Um, greet each other with a spiritual kiss, aren't we? And in our culture, that would actually be inappropriate to kiss another guy in church. And yet in other cultures, in France, actually, that might be quite genuinely okay. In Arabic nations, that might be okay. If you're in an Eskimo, you might greet each other with a, a nose wiggle together. Um, but in this culture, I don't think that's really appropriate. So try to understand what, what we're doing here is trying to understand that there are cultural differences going on. And um, I think what we need to do is try to understand the root of what that sign is trying to say to us. So when we're looking at this, there's something about going back and saying, what was the head covering meaning? Okay? Um, because if we're honest, wearing hats or a head covering... Um, Obviously, Paul is suggesting that there's something very dishonoring for a woman not to wear one and something very dishonoring for a man to wear one. And there's also this language of having long hair. If a man has long hair, there's something very dishonoring in the culture that says something. So we're going to try and understand what was going on in the culture, what it meant. Um, I don't want people to be walking out if they have got long hair if you're a man. I, I don't think there's a problem in our culture. And that's why... When we're looking at this, we have to understand our culture. So let's just think about the head covering. The head covering in those times. Scholars agree that the head covering or the veil symbolized something truly important in the culture of that day. And it was a little bit like a wedding band, a wedding ring. It symbolized to others that someone is married. So a Jewish woman in her culture, she wore a head covering. And that meant she was affirmed, she was seen as a woman of self-respect, a decent, upstanding woman of the community. And in fact, in the Mishnah, um, women could actually be divorced if they had their heads uncovered. Okay, And actually, even in that time as well, there was, if you were caught in adultery, you would get your head shaved. 
Okay, so when we're talking about some of these ideas, looking at the culture, these were some of the things that went on. A woman's hair really was only to be seen by her husband and her family. And actually, we can sort of understand a little bit about this because we see in, as, in, in um, Islamic nations, um, and we've had a huge, it's actually been very controversial uh, about these head coverings that Islamic women wear. Um, actually, they wear that to represent the fact that uh, they're married, okay? That actually, they're not available. And if you had a woman walking down the street with her hood up and a man started harassing her or trying to talk to her, there'd be some problems, actually. He would face consequences because it's inappropriate in the culture. She's saying, I'm married and essentially I'm for my husband. And so in that culture there, we can understand that uh, head coverings are used and they're really important for women to understand. But in this culture, what are some of the things that are going on? What's, what's happening? Um, the other issue that happened in that day was temple prostitutes. We've already learned about Corinth. In fact, there was a temple not far from here, and um, the temple prostitutes didn't wear he- head coverings. They actually wore their hair long. And so if you wore your hair long, that was another sign that you were quite loose as a woman, potentially a prostitute, essentially saying, yes, I'm open for business. And so Paul's addressing a very, very cultural issue here. And actually, that's not the case nowadays, is it? Women wearing their hair down, we don't think, oh, she's obviously available. Um, she's open for business. It just, it just doesn't work in our culture, does it? And um, so if women in the church were not wearing head coverings, it was a distraction. It was a distraction in worship for the men. And so firstly, it represented really the honor of marriage, okay, of headship, of purity, of self-respect. And also, um, the other main point, it was helped to distinguish between the sexes. Actually, the clothing in those days was quite similar, okay? So for a man to have long hair and to, not, uh, to, to, be, to be wearing a head covering from behind, you might not have known if that was a man or a woman, Okay, and so there's something here on distinguishing uh, the sexes as well, just because things were, clothing was very similar. And so, obviously with long hair as well, there was also an idea that if you had long hair, there was a propensity towards homosexuality, uh, real femininity. Um, and so in that culture, that, that's what was seen. If you had long hair as a man, you would have seen, been seen as a homosexual um, or very, very feminine. Um, and that way inclined. And so there's something here that Paul is wanting to get across. He's wanting to preserve the, um, something about our gender and our roles as man and woman. So really what was going on in the church here for Paul to be addressing this issue, this letter that was written, we read it here, don't we, of what's going on. Essentially, you've got Christians and Jews who, um, as we heard from chapters 8 to 10, they're living in this new freedom. Okay, this newfound freedom that they've got in Christ. And um, there's a liberty in the church. And they're celebrating their freedom. And men and women are expressing this freedom by taking off their head coverings. And really what they're doing is blurring some of the lines. Um, or they're taking some of the scripture and it's, it's causing it to be out of kilter. Um, they were believing essentially that these... Christian freedoms that they had meant there was no gender. It didn't matter whether you were man or woman. 
And so they were taking these off and putting them on. It didn't matter whether I was man or woman. Actually, there's no distinction of gender here. And actually, to be sure, if you look at some of Paul's teaching in Galatians 3, there will be no male or female in Christ. That's what he says. But that's not what he's meaning here. Okay? And you know, the thing about the gospel is it does bring amazing equality and liberty. Jesus did that himself, didn't he? If we look at Jesus' ministry, he called many women to join him. He had many disciples of women, which, let's be honest, was very countercultural in his day. And Paul, we read, he gathered many prominent women. We see in Romans 16, some of those women that he actually used in the help of leadership of churches. Um, and Paul uses here some very clear arguments in this passage to examine gender distinction. And he first of all looks at the Trinity and the Godheads. And he moves on to look at creation and God's intentions back at the creation, um, back at the beginning of the world. Okay? So we're going to have a quick look at that. So essentially what we're saying, the bigger picture under here, Paul is wanting to look at headship. Okay? What did, what did these head coverings represent? There was a headship in worship. Okay? And there was also about just gender distinction, understanding man, men being men, and women being women. So verse 3, chapter 11. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God's. It's very simple there, isn't it? Very simple language. He wants us to understand in this passage that the key issue of authorities and submission. And he tells us essentially that obviously the head of man is Christ, the head of, his wife, of a wife is her husband. And then he goes on to tell us that the head of Christ is God the Father. And you know, the first thing that jumps out, we don't like this terminology in the 21st century culture, do we? To suggest that a husband may be the head of his wife is quite shocking. It's quite um, disrespectful in our culture. And rightfully, scholars have then asked this question, what does this term head actually mean? How do we translate what this term head is? And that's quite difficult because actually head has many different meanings. And just three of those meanings, three of the main uh, meanings, one is prominence, one is authority, and one is source. And when we look at the English language, there's a few pictures to help understand. You've got, you know, the head or the top of a mountain. You've got the head or leader of a company, and you've got the source of a river, okay? And so when we're trying to understand what this word means, these are all helpful things to show us what head actually meant when Paul was talking about it. And when we're not talking about the body part, really what we understand by this word head from all three of these, there's something of a, of a prominence in this word. There's something of an authority and a submission to, okay? So, the problem is that when we look at these terms, they don't translate well in our society. So if you look up submission on a Google search, I suggest you don't. It's, um, you're not going to get some very nice images there. Because how our society views submission is horrifically. It's being distorted as a term. And yet, this word submission is used in the Bible lots. And it was beautiful. Its actual definition and meaning is beautiful. And I want to say about this verse 3, the last phrase for me is probably the most shocking. The head of Christ is God. 
What does that mean? We're talking about the head of Christ is God. Surely Jesus is God, isn't he? And he claimed to be God. I mean, he almost got stoned for it, we see. In John 1, we're told that he's the words and that he is God. And you know, this is one of the great mysteries within the Bible when you hear that word Trinity. And I'm not really trying to go into looking at the Trinity today, but I'm going to just touch on it because it's really important as we look at this passage to understand the Trinity because Paul uses the Godhead here to help us to understand something about relationships, to understand how they work together. So just a few things to help you with the Trinity. Um, Obviously, we have one God, Yahweh, okay? And yet there's three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And trust me, this will baffle your heads because it's baffled everybody's heads for as long as we can remember. And trying to fully understand this is almost impossible. So Paul wants us to understand how do we relate to the Godhead. They're all co-eternal, they're co-existent. In fact, all the attributes of God are true of all three persons of the Trinity. And yet they hold the same power, but we're told that the Father has a greater power. So we have one God, three persons. Each person of the Godhead is fully God in and of themselves. And yet, there is only one God. Mind-blowing. Your head just goes, I just can't quite understand that. And yet these, as we look at Scripture, is what defines the Trinity, the Godhead. And um, the main thing to understand here, equality of essence does not deny distinction of role. So this is quite teachy, obviously. And this is the thing about Paul. He's gone into something. He's trying to help us to understand something very important. And yet he's going back to help us to, to look at what this actually means. So... What does that mean? Equality of essence does not deny distinction of role. Essentially, they are all God, and yet they all function with a different role. Okay? So, for example, there was a a submission from the, um, the son to the father. So we see it in creation. The father speaks, and he initiates, but the actual work of creation is carried out through the son and sustained by the Spirit. And then we've got God's salvation plan of mankind, and the Father sends the Son. He actually sends the Son. He's the one with the authority to send the Son. And the Son, Jesus, is obedient to the Father. And when Jesus leaves earth, what does he do? He sends the Spirit. And so we see that actually they're all gods, and yet they're one God. And yet there's a distinction of authority here and a submission to each other. A submission from Jesus to the Father, a submission uh, from the Spirit to Jesus. And submission is a very difficult thing to understand in this culture. Because if we're honest, when we hear the words authority over or head of or the boss, then, well, as men, we just tend to become power crazy lunatics, don't we? And we start to think, well, that makes us better than that person or other people. And we tend to put ourselves on a pedestal thinking that we're more important than others. 
And it brings connotations of dominance and abuse and of power. And so we really do need to think about what, is a, what does an understanding of a healthy model of leadership look like? And what a healthy view of submission looks like. Paul moves from this Trinitarian argument in this passage, trying to help us to understand that as men and women, there's a submission to one another that we need to understand. He then moves to a creation argument. So we see in verse 8, he says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. So he's taking us right back to the beginning to try and help us understand how this works. He understands it's difficult to understand. And he starts with essentially saying, look, there's a right at the beginning here, I want to take you back to highlight a chronological difference. Man was made first. Man was made first. I remember the account in Genesis, don't we? As God looked around, he'd made Adam, and he realized that Adam needed a helper. He needed some company. You know, he was given this beautiful garden to live in. He had authority over uh, the created things. And yet, Adam knew that none of these animals were going to satisfy him. He knew that these animals that God created um, were not going to be the one that was satisfying him. And so God said, look, I'm going to make you a helper. And he took a rib from the side of Adam and he formed Eve. And I love this. I've just put this uh, little thing on here. A woman was made from the rib of a man, not from the head to top him, nor his foot um, to be stepped on by him, but from his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Oh, I just thought it was quite nice, isn't it? But actually, there's some real truth in understanding uh, as, we, as we try and understand and define what, what was God trying to say here? Why did he take, he could have, he formed man out of the dust. So when we're talking about understanding language and understanding people, he took woman from the rib. There's an equality here that he wants us to understand. The woman was made in God's image just as the man, and yet the animals weren't made in his image. So man and woman are image bearers of God. And there's an equality here. She wasn't taken from the foot. She wasn't taken from the head. This was a side-by-side equality. And there's something here that God wants us to understand, that Paul's trying to remind us of. Um, There's this working together as husband and wife. You see, if we're honest men, we need help, don't we? You leave a man by himself... And we don't know what we're doing. And God knew that. And Adam knew that, to be honest. And so he goes, you, you need some help, man. We're going to send you a helper. And um, just this term, helper, you know, in our language, in our culture, it's, it's like, it's totally derogative, isn't it? You what? I'm the helper. It's a little bit like at school being given, you know, I'm the milk monitor. It's like, what? Helper. And yet, actually, when we try to understand what this word, this term helper is, God himself was described as the helper. The Holy Spirit was described as the helper. And um, there's a total honoring in this, in this term. This isn't a derogative term. It's not a, well, you're down there. He's saying you're equal, side by side. But there's a different role. Adam was there naming the animals. 
but he didn't know what he was doing. So God sent him the helper. The Holy Spirit is described as the helper. So if God doesn't have a problem being called a helper, I want to suggest we've got something wrong in our culture if we think it's derogative, if we think it's, it's down there. It was funny, I spoke to Sandra about this term, just being from a different culture. And she said, actually, um, if I'm the helper, I'm looking at the person that I'm coming to help. I don't see it as me down there. I see me actually coming to help somebody who needs my help. And so that's a, it's another way of looking at it. This isn't a derogative term, women. There's something here of, we men, we need help. We need your help. And God's wired you differently to help us out. And so this is the sort of relationship that he's trying to help us to understand. Okay? He's going back to creation to say, this is how I've made you. This is how it was before the fall. And so when we look at the relationships now, and we look at the world, and we look at where it's got to, we have to ask those questions. Why has it all fallen apart? Why is it that actually this beautiful relationship of submission, of the man leading his wife, has just eroded? And actually, we go back to looking at Genesis chapter 3, and um, I just want us to look quickly at verse 16. And what's happened here is, is um, man has fallen, okay? They've done the one thing that God said don't do, okay? And actually, as a man, as Adam, he had to take responsibility. There's something here on him leading his wife, okay? So as men, when we're looking at the application here, there's something for us to understand how do we lead our wives. But he took the responsibility, and he had the authority, and God came to Adam first, didn't he? Not to Eve, when they'd fallen. But I just want to read out here the consequence of sin, the consequence of not of, of disobeying God. And it's just from the woman's perspective here. It says to the woman, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so we've got the consequences of disobeying God and you've got this actually Childbearing, I think for Adam at the time, might have actually been, whoo, because actually the consequence he thought was death. That's what God said would happen. If you eat of this tree, you will die. And I think he probably thought immediate death. But um, the fact is, women are going to give birth. It's going to be painful, though. And it's this next part I want to look at. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It's trying to understand what's, what's happened here in the curse. What has been distorted between the relationships here within the curse? Your desire will be for your husband. Actually, guys, this isn't a good desire. This isn't a, okay, you're going to really fancy me all the time. Um, it's not that sort of desire. Actually, this desire is a um, what's happened between the roles. As the man is to lead and cherish his wife, the woman, actually, part of that, she will desire to lead over him, to have authority over him. There will be desire to, to be the leader, to be the one with the authority. That's actually the curse. And so when we see society today and we see culture, we see that having worked its way out. We see it in a lot of um, feminist um, behaviors and cultures of what they're trying to bring. And it's come because of this next part. 
If we look at what happens, he will rule over you. This isn't a helpful ruling. It's not a helpful authority. It's not how the man should respond to the woman. There's something here that actually he will rule over you with aggression, with dominance, um, with a forcefulness. It's a really unhelpful ruling. And actually, that is why we have a lot of the feminist movements that have risen up. Because actually, we have to admit, as men, there's been an oppression of women for centuries. There's been a ruling over in a wrong sense because of a dominance, of using our brute strength, of using our forcefulness. And so out of that, women have reacted and said, actually, we want to go alone. We want to be independent. We don't need men in our lives. We don't need this. We actually can do what they do. We don't need them. The passage goes on to looking at um, Paul exhorting this interdependence between man and woman, between husband and wife. And that is the terminology that he's coming from. He's trying to look at what it is for husband and wife to relate, this honoring of headship. And when we're looking about submission in the church, it's really important to understand that actually this isn't about um, women should submit to men. That's not what it's saying. And unfortunately, that's what's happened in the past is men have gone, hey, you're a woman, submit to me. One, they've misunderstood submission. And secondly, they've misunderstood that this only happens in certain relationships. It happens in relationships of husband and wife. I'd suggest it happens between father and and, and, and kids. It happens with an eldership of a church and the church. But nowhere else does it happen. So for a man to come and say, hold on, I'm a man, therefore you submit to me, is totally incorrect biblically. And we must stand against that. Because that's been there and it's seeped through our culture. Do you know, I guess in just trying to apply this I am coming towards the end. I know it's a difficult passage. There's lots of teaching. So try and bear with me. In trying to apply this passage to our church and our lives, Paul is really wanting us to preserve gender distinctions, which, let's be honest, is so relevant in our culture. And it's more relevant than ever when actually our culture is suffering from massive gender confusion. I believe he wants us to model... Submission and authority in a godly, biblical manner. And you know, Jesus, he, he walked the earth and he had this amazing authority, didn't he, and power in being God and doing the work of the Father. And it's really helpful to look at how did he exercise his authority. And just one example that I can think of that stands out to me would be in John 13. And in John 13, he's got all the disciples and he washes their feet. He washes their feet. He chooses to use all of his power and authority to serve and to love and to care for others. That's how Jesus chose to model his authority. He chose to model servant leadership. He chose to love others. He chose to do the jobs that no one else wanted to do. It was the worst of the worst. People have been out on dusty roads. They've got cut feet. It's smelly. It's grubby. The last thing you want to do is touch somebody's feet who are just disgusting. And yet he chose as God to wash these guys' feet. 
And the other thing I want to show us is Ephesians 5. So when I think about submission and I think about these relationships that God, that Paul has wanted us to understand and model in the church, this is the message version. It says this, and this is directly for husbands and wives. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way that Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leaderships, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's Christ's love makes the whole church. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. There's a passage to dwell on, isn't there? For us as husbands and wives of how we model healthy submission and healthy relationships in our church. And um, just coming back to this passage, I don't think Paul is telling us that we have to wear head coverings in this passage. I want to reiterate that. Um, but I want to say that if you still feel like after reading this passage that you feel like, actually, no, I want to, I feel like I should be honoring the passage and I still feel like it says and means I should be wearing a head covering, I want to say absolutely fine. Okay? We must respect and honor people's integrity to want to follow scripture. Okay? I don't think Paul's saying that. And actually, if you start telling other people in the church they should be, then I'd have a problem with it. But if you feel from your own conviction that this is what you should do, then I'd say do it. But what I do think is that the head covering represented within the body this beautiful design that God had for relationships, for understanding men being men, leading in a healthy way, leading our wives, cherishing them, caring for them, looking after them, looking out for them, covering them, just as Christ did the church. And if we're honest, I know I can stand here and and preach this, but man, I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot to learn. But we can't skim over these passages and pretend they don't exist. There's something here for us to learn as men. And that means there's a temptation, I think, as men to look at this and go, well, I'll let her make the decision she wants. We're not talking about abdicating authority here. Because that's the thing that in our society, in our culture, probably we're more prone to doing. We abdicate all the authority to the wives, say, look, I'm not, I'm not domineering, I'm not abusive, I'm a 21st century guy. There's something here as husbands, as men, to understand we need to lead. And we need to lead well. We need to lead our wives into a loving relationship with Christ and with ourselves. We need to help them make them secure. I think for wives, there's something here on your husbands knowing your full support. Of you honoring their decision making. Of trusting them. Just 
just as we see Christ trusting his father in the decisions that he made, there's something here for us, for you wives, to, to know how do I help my husband to feel um, empowered to do that, to have the authority to lead us. Do you know, I know this is a, as I say, it's a really difficult passage. I want to encourage you that if you've got questions, I'm sure you will, please come and speak to me. Um, I know that not everybody will agree with what's been said today, and that's okay as well. Um, but the last thing we want is you to go away and go, huh, I'm not coming to this sexist church. This isn't about sexism. Because it's one of those messages where you just think, man, I can understand why people don't even bother going into this. Because it's really difficult in our culture, isn't it, to try and get our heads around. And yet there's something so important and so biblical that Paul is trying to bring to us. And we have to understand that there are cultural relevances to us here.